Hello and welcome to Hyped, the podcast for the culturally curious that turns a critical eye on some of the most hyped books, plays, films, music and TV shows of recent years. Join us as we work out where these cultural trends have come from and what they reveal about modern society. I'm Zoe Strimple, columnist, dating expert and historian of gender in modern Britain. And I'm Tom Stemmers, a historian of France and a general cultural glutton with a weakness for all things 19th century. Zoe and I have been consuming and debating culture together ever since we were at university, uh, which is now so long ago, in fact, that it feels like it was when the English the male team won the World Cup in 1966. Yes, Bobby Moore was captain back when we began uh, chin-wagging over these things. Today we're doing a phenomenon that isn't um, necessarily included in the books, TV, radio, theatre, <laughs> etc. list. Um, we're doing the Women's Euros, which were a you know sellout Wembley smash hit phenomenon, changed the trajectory of ho- football, male and female, forever to come, and so on and so forth. And the final being um, on Sunday, July 31st, I think it was. And something that if you were in the UK, you couldn't help but kind of be part of, whether you were into football or not. So we thought we would talk about that and think about what has suddenly happened and emerged um, in women's football such that the likes of even Tom and me are finding ourselves glued to the screen for the final, even nearly shedding a tear or two. Um, And and especially in Britain, you know, the the culture around football is one of the most intense and important. So what did you make of this whole escapade? You were were a skeptic about the women's Euros, were you not? Well, I should play my cards and say, I'm a skeptic about watching football matches in general. Like this is not something I tend to do for fun. Uh, Occasionally I'll be dragged in by a World Cup or Euros, but, on Sunday night, um, I'd, I'd seen a little bit of the uh, semi-final against Sweden, thanks to Zoe, and I'd seen the highlights of this. Uh, and then on Sunday night, I watched the final with 17.4 million other people, felt this amazing sense of kind of collective experience. You know, you, you could hear people shouting in the street, you could see that the pubs are completely full. And I did shed a tear. I thought it was incredibly moving. And I think part of the reason why it's moving is just how this moment has come about in that the battle for recognition for female football um, and women's football has been long. It's been a long, hard, difficult road. And, you know, it was interesting for me just wearing a historian's hat for a moment. Do you know when the, uh, when kind of that this is not an entirely new phenomenon, Zoe? Did you, do you know a little bit about the prehistory of this? Well, if, if you mean of women's football, yes, uh, it, it has a long prehistory. It was one of them. It was, in fact, I think it was the most popular spectator sport in Britain during World War II or even one. Um, it's one, Zoe. It's one. one because when the men were away at the front, yeah, there's this pioneering women's football team, uh, you know, which was assembled by a, a kind of group of munitions workers in Preston, yeah. the, the Dick Kerr Ladies FD. And it's amazing to think in 1920 they were playing to 53,000 spectators at Goodison Park. I mean, they were filling huge uh, arena. And then, of course, the ban comes. And so for 50 years, then uh, the FA, although it can't stop women playing in a private capacity, they make it incredibly hard for women to have access to the pitches. In fact, it's impossible for them to get access to the pitches or any of the other kind of infrastructure that comes with it. And um, so it has been a long, hard struggle. And I think the FA, you know, has a has a dark history there. It should be said that it's not just the British Football Association that banned women. You know, they were banned formally in Germany. They were banned formally in Brazil for many years. And it's really only in the 70s that that, that, that started to change. Yeah. So to go from that low, low, low bar of discrimination and ridicule and prejudice to 
a situation where this has brought joy to the entire nation uh, and that these uh, these female players are now kind of icons um, and whose names are now all household words. That's quite an amazing transformation. I think there's a, you know, the speed with which this sort of complete capture and the kind of equalization as it, you know, as it were of women's football is, is astonishing because I used to teach uh, school groups at the British Library um, and we did a segment on a women's football because the British Library actually has some nice resources. In fact, it has an archive that relates to it and the ban by the FA. And I would sort of say to the girls, um, you know, do, how many of you play football? How many are, are you, you are interested in football? And a number of them would say there isn't football for girls at our school. Um, mm. They put blank. I think that must have kind of radically changed. I think the, the, the recent history or even the longer history from the 19, let's say the late teens when World War One is happening up until now is, a, is as good a story of, of the history of women and feminism and, you know, women's being, women being sort of stymied almost a, history of this concept of patriarchal equilibrium as any mm -hmm. you know as soon as women make gains the world comes down and says no you have to get out of the industry so i mean i just want to quickly quote very good friend and football expert mm -hmm. uh, M. withers who i had the privilege of seeing on the very day they were on their way to wembley and on the the FA DM says, essentially on the pitch, the game is the same. The rules are the same. There are no adjustments that enable women to participate. But off the pitch, it is clear to me, women's football is different. And that's a very good thing. It has a different heritage, one of clear systematic discrimination, which should be a source of deep institutional embarrassment for the FA. The game has been stymied, ridiculed, stigmatized. In its resurgence, the culture of women's football has proved to be an inclusive space for everyone who loves football, but who feels excluded or threatened by the culture of men's football. Typically, audiences are nerdy, effeminate boys, neurodiverse people, queers, children, mums and dads. The atmosphere is gentle, sweet, passionate, happy, inspired, empowered, uplifted. It is a cultural antidote to misery and hate and genuinely transformative. And then DM added something just really worth repeating, which is that, and again, you know, you'd never have this kind of language used for the men's game, although they have their own language, which is that DM says, I would even go so far as saying that the England women's team this Euros with Wiegmann at the helm were shamanic figures, taking us on mm. the hero's journey, posing questions, facing disaster and peril, only to emerge victorious, whole, reborn and returning football home. Um, and I think that's brilliant. And I think the, the question it poses to me is, given uh, these completely different nature of the fans, the culture that's different, these women are still fantastically competitive, hard-nosed, brilliant football players. They're not playing a girly game at all. And brilliant businesswomen as well. I mean, to give the amazing uh, Wiegmann her due, She's also had to battle tooth and nail to get proper kind of resources put into the team and for kind of proper commercial um, kind of recognition for them. Um, and it should be said that, I mean, one of the reasons why there's been this great breakthrough is because of the investment that's come in. You know, the sponsorship from uh, Barclays has been really important. Um, the TV deals with Sky and the BBC, which means that more people can see the women's game now. All of these kind of big commercial decisions have also been uh, really significant. And I'd say I think it's the FA director of women's sport is called Sue Campbell. And I've read a variety of things about what a transformative impact she's had just in the past five years or so. That said, though, I think the contrast with the men's game is really interesting because I was listening to LBC on Monday morning, as I often am. And it was full of people ringing in saying how, you know, impatient they now feel with the spoilt male players you know that they'd seen this spirit of as you say incredible competitive football um but also the kind of atmosphere at the game being this kind of wonderfully inclusive moment and now this new kind of anger at these kind of male players who have resources that far outstrip what the women get um 
you know, indeed, if the men had won last year at the uh, at the US, they would have got a million pounds each as a reward. The women's bonus for winning is fifty-five thousand pounds each, mm. to give a sense of some of these kind of differentials. Um, and I think also the memory of you know the shame of the European final last year with Britain versus Italy, or sorry, England versus Italy, where there was all the crowd, crowd bad behaviour, where there were all the people with illegal tickets, where there was the violence. It was all really shameful and squalid. And the contrast with this summer, I think, couldn't be couldn't be clearer. Um, who were your particular sort of standout figures, Zoe? Do you have any players or kind of personalities that you were well, you were relishing? Well, thank you for bringing it to the viewer experience through the standout figures, because actually I'm someone who tends to find football just sort of I walk into a pub, the football's on, I walk out of the pub. But you just couldn't help but delight at the at the game that these ladies were playing. And 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 immediately you kind of found yourself being amazed at individuals. A few games back, um, I was very taken by the much repeated um, goal by Georgia Stanway, who I think headed it in there. It was, it was called a screamer. I'm not quite sure what that was, but it was amazing. Then, you know, Beth Mead, what a champ. I happen to love Mary Earps. The keeper is astonishing. Oh, She's wonder, amazing keeper, let almost nothing in. But, and you just think, oh my God, these, these people all have ponytails, boobs, and they are killing it in a way that you know when i watch the men you can barely watch you don't even get continuous football they're constantly hurling themselves around doing the kind of dramatic foul stuff you just saw so much continuous brilliant football here and just what yeah so i was taken by erps i find it very amusing they all have these sort of single syllable last names i mean bronze bronze mead um you know tune they're all very hemp hemp very anglo-saxon which tom brings us to the issue of race um, and diversity. What do you think we are to make of the fact that the um, starting team and really up until like the last two seconds was entirely white? I think this has been slightly overplayed. Um, I, you know, I understand where the concern comes from, partly because the whole country wants to get behind the team. I'm a bit suspicious of the idea that if there aren't um, players from ethnic minorities, then that means that those communities can't fully embrace the English team. I sometimes one, you know, I sometimes query that kind of claim about identification. Um, the reason why it's happened, I think, it seems to be there's a lot of discussion about these regional training centres. That actually, this is where you kind of identify talent in the next generation. You know, these sort of academies, and more and more of those are now located in suburban areas or even in rural areas, which actually means that kind of the the kind of large inner city population of ethnic minorities, it's much harder for them to access. So, I mean, there's not discrimination happening on any level of racism, but there are kind of infrastructural barriers, I suppose, that maybe make it a little bit harder. And um, that said, football is one of the easiest sports to start playing. I mean, yes, all right, there's the cost of the boots when you get good, but essentially, unlike tennis or unlike I don't know, yachting, you know, you don't need much kit to start doing it. Like it's quite, it's quite easy access. Um, and I think historically, it's also worth saying that the first English uh, woman's manager, um, Hope Powell, uh, was, a, was a black British woman and she was manager for 15 years. You think about some of the other icons of the sport, like Alex Scott, who now is the commentator, but obviously played for Arsenal for a long time. I mean, there, there has been diversity historically at the team, both on management level and also amongst the players. So I think it's a bit of a kind of hiccup um, in 2021 and it, sorry, 2022, and it doesn't reflect sort of structural uh, racism within the sport. Well, not only that, but it's bound to change now because this is going to become, you know, something that young, that girls now kind of desperately want to do. And I think on that scale, I think it's a very, very interesting win because I think it's one of the most concrete and positive 
lurches forward for women that we've had in decades. And we are in such a fractious mm -hmm. time of negativity and you know, dragged into the mire. We had Me Too, we've got all the aggro over the trans debates. You know, we've got like a contagion of teenage girls binding their breasts and obviously unhappy being teenage girls. It's there's so much negativity. And here in one fell swoop, you suddenly have a situation where young women are at the absolute top, not only of their game, of the game in the world, one of the most influential, powerful sports in the world. They um, are cute and feminine. A lot of them are lesbians. They are, you know, running around with amazing bodies. These are bodies that are weapons on the field. And I think unlike in tennis where they're wearing short skirts, you know, football is really interesting in terms of what it asks of the women physically. There is no, you, you don't try to be sexy really on the pitch. I mean, you, mm. there's no time for that. And I think that moment when Chloe Kelly um, made her extra time score, yeah. therefore won the, won the match at the final, was, you know, there's been a lot of talk about what it meant that she took off her shirt and waved it around. And I was watching it in a pub and there was a group of old men there and they, but they did say, put your shirt back on, you know, that's something like that, which yeah, you can get a yellow card for taking off your shirt. But there was still that sense of, wow, this is a huge statement that the world isn't entirely ready for. But some commentators were saying, this is phenomenal in a world of, you know, we can make this link, Tom, because, you know, both of us are obsessed with it in a world of Love Island and similar to have a woman <laughs> taking off her shirt and running around in her bra. Uh, but it being a sports bra, and she's just scored a, a goal that's what made, you know, England win its first, you know, championship of this nature since 1966. You know, that that was that was really, really a big deal. Um, I don't know, as what did you think when the shirt came off? Well, I, I mean, I thought, you know, good on you, girl. Uh, you know, the local girl from Ealing. Um, but the other thing that, you know, I was then reminded of, or indeed I was informed of by the, I have to say, excellent commentary, is um, that that was a deliberate quotation, if you like, from Brandy Chastain, who apparently for the US team in 1999, this was a kind of transformative moment when the US team won the uh, Olympics and she removed her shirt. Uh, and so it was a kind of, again, it's the, the, because this has been a sport which has been discriminated against, I think they are very conscious of the milestones. I think even the young players are very aware of the, the kind of even recent battles for recognition. And so it was a nice way of kind of looking back at that foundation. And um, I think there's a lot of, and you, you know, you're capturing it as well, Zoe, there is a huge amount of goodwill to the women's game at the moment. There's a lot of optimism about its future. Um, I think when you peer it a little bit more closely, there are still real problems. One of those problems, I know that you had a discussion with DM about this, is that yes, you've got professionalization for some of the really big clubs and powerful clubs, but actually elsewhere, there are a lot of um, quite insecure contracts. There are a lot of people, um, a lot of women on kind of quite limited wages. There's a lot of precarity, um, that there are big kind of discrepancies there. I also saw actually that the, the one of the big problems is actually venues. Um, so even during this uh, Euros contest, actually various people had said, well, why are they playing in Brighton? You know, they could have actually got much, much bigger crowds. You know, the Brighton stadium, I think, holds about sort of 20,000, 25,000. And that's because in 2018, the big stadia didn't want to host the women's game. They were approached that year and said, you've got the opportunity if you'd like to host one of these games. And they said, we'll, we'll never sell the tickets. We don't really want it. Um, and so it does seem that there is a, there's a disconnect between the joy behind this big international competition and what's happening on a kind of weekly level. Um, I did read somewhere that the average audience has fallen from about 3,000 for a women's game, uh, and this is in the Women's Super League, down to about 2,000 
2021. So actually, these are the week in, week out audiences are small, despite yeah. the fact that actually it costs very, very little. Uh, I also read, here's a fun fact, a season ticket for Chelsea. If you want to go and see the women's, uh, Chelsea women's uh, team for the year, it's going to cost you £49. Wow. I mean, compared to the price of going to see the men, it's it's crazy. And so I do hope it's not just about the sort of shiny stars winning the cup, although they're, they're brilliant. It is how we kind of properly support what's happening at a grassroots level as well. Build audiences. Yes, that's absolutely right. Because DM, um, the great DM, who, by the way, you know, is a is someone who, um, as well as being an, an, an academic and a scholar um, and, a, and, a script, and a screenplay writer, is, al- is also a regular guest on football podcasts um, and broadcasts did say that you know, DM and their partner supports uh, Bristol City women's, you know, absolutely everything, obsessive support, go to as many away games as they possibly can. Often it's just them two and this one man that always turns up in a hoodie in the audience. There can sometimes just be three people at those away games. So I, I think, and again, you know, here's this huge deal. We had no problem getting a seat in a pub. The pub was not full. There was one small TV playing it. And an hour after the match finished, the streets were still pretty quiet. You compare that to what would happen if England had won the, the men's Euros. I mean, it's, it's, it's literally incomparable. Um, so yes, Wembley sold out. Tickets were going for about 10 pounds for a long time. In the end, the excitement was there. Um, but final question, Tom, why do you think that it was at this moment that the women's championship took light? I wasn't even paying attention to it at the beginning. It was only someone, a, a male football fan that I know, who said, oh, I'm, I'm actually watching the, I think it was the Sweden game. You know, England's done incredibly well. It's just scored four goals. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I didn't even know it was going on. Why now? In terms of why did they win or why has it captured the public imagination now? I mean, I think the size of the win is part of the answer. I mean, these 8-0 victories, these 4-0 victories, I mean, these are huge margins. And yeah. there's been a sense of kind of, wow, you know, the, the lionesses have arrived. Yeah. Um, that does it is a remarkable change in form compared to even over a kind of you know a couple of years ago. So um, I think that the margins have excited people. I think it very much goes to what you were saying earlier, Zoe, is actually that we're in a time where there aren't many other good news stories, as it were. Um, and you know Wimbledon is over. Some of the other kind of sporting distractions are done, and kind of Britain hasn't performed well there. Yeah. Um, and people are hungry for a for a kind of uplifting narrative um, about England. Yeah. And here it and here it's come with these very likable girls with these amazing margins at a time where there aren't that many other pressures on patriotism, uh, where a lot of people think the country is otherwise falling to bits or is a bit broken. And, you know, suddenly everyone's been able to kind of pull together. Yeah. Yes. Does I think, that seem right to you? Yes, I think that sounds that does sound about right. Um, and I think it is just as it's the antidote we need. Um, so, Zoe, from your perspective, why the hype? history moves in funny ways and the and you know as hamlet said the readiness is all um i think that sometimes it's hard to pinpoint why something like this has finally found its moment just like it's hard to pinpoint why certain technologies finally found their moment uh when they did um i i think that you know i think it's just so interesting that they've obviously been working away in the background and turned themselves into just unequivocally absolutely brilliant players i think in a way it's like almost like you know suddenly you get the emergence of certain female politicians who have to work extra hard, but then they end up being the, some of the most important sort of leaders in the world. So I think these these women have had to just be incredibly good, and they actually have just earned it by tooth mm-hmm. and nail. So I think that that's the I think that's the reason. I think they've been they should have probably had their moment 10, 15, 20, 
70 years ago, 100 years ago. In terms of the bigger backlash, Zoe, as well, I do think this is, you know, it's, or sorry, in terms of a backlash context, I think this is a year where the stories for women have often been, you know, pretty disappointing. I, mean, I think about, you know, the, the huge debate about um, Roe versus Wade and so on. Um, and it's interesting that sport maybe is one of the domains where these kind of, there's still an ability to have a kind of progressive feminist narrative. It's striking at this time, the Commonwealth Games this year has dramatically increased the number of female sports yeah. within the Commonwealth Games. Like there is something about sport as a domain in which the march of women's opportunities and women's rights is still visible and there's still kind of progress to be made, whereas maybe in lots of other social and cultural domains, people feel that things are going in the wrong direction. Well, and don't forget, it's, yeah, the, all the debate about Leah Thomas and the trans, whether tra um, you mm -hmm. know, trans athletes should perform a women's sport. So the, the question of fairness to women has been really, really current. Um, and I think one of the nice things about this was that there was no question about trans women competing, you know, against or on, you know, it was just, it was just a celebration of, of women. Make anyone who, who's found the debates and the fights and the fractures of the last few months deeply disturbing and, and you know, destabilizing. So we'll see uh, where this, where they go with this current win. We'll see if the players are paid what, they're, what they deserve. You know, the, the, the struggle to get women's tennis um, fairly treated was, was obviously a huge one. So, you know, it's, we can't just pretend sexism's dead. You know, the male, you know, chauvinism dies hard. And we sort of, yeah, we will see. So join us next time for Beyonce's new album, which Tom is called... Renaissance. And it's supposed to have an unbelievable amount of obscenity in it. And, and that is going to be very interesting for someone that appears to have been very Christian and into motherhood in recent years. So join us for an enlivening discussion of Beyonce's latest album. 